My guest today is the great maverick Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, is a GP who lives and works in NHS in Cheshire, although he still considers himself at least 90% Scots, maybe 92%. He has an enduring passion for heart disease, what causes it and what doesn't. Here's one clue. It is not cholesterol in the diet or the bloodstream. He's written two books about heart disease, The Great Cholesterol Con and A Statin Nation, and one book on how medical research is manipulated to serve commercial interests called Doctoring Data. His latest book, The Clot Thickens, unravels what really causes heart disease, which is what we're going to talk about. Uh, he writes a blog, a blog, drmalcolmkendrick.org. I'll put these details up. Uh, after the podcast, and he thinks the world has officially gone mad, either that or he has. So welcome, Malcolm. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for asking me to uh, to come on. Much appreciated. Now, I know it's rather sort of old for you, but we hear about cholesterol being carried on the LDL. That's the low density lipoprotein carrier being the bad guy, the bad LDL cholesterol that gets stuck in our arteries, leading to a blockage, um, otherwise known as an atheroma. Why is this wrong? Well, <laughs> don't get me started. Uh, well, I must admit that when I was at medical school, um, you know, and people said that saturated fat raised cholesterol and cholesterol got absorbed into your arteries and caused heart disease, I, was, um, I had no real reason to doubt it uh, as an idea. Superficially, it sounds quite quite attractive you know you have these of course we don't have cholesterol in our bloodstream because it's not soluble in water but um, so therefore it's packed into a small sphere about the size of a virus particle and transported around in the bloodstream along with it has to be said fats and fatty acids or however you wish to describe them that's what we call cholesterol um, obviously there's many different forms but the idea if you have a lot of a substance in the bloodstream that if it reaches a high level, it kind of leaks out and then ends up building up into kind of thickenings and plaques, uh, as they're called, within arteries, makes some, at least superficially sounding, you know, very, very sensible. Um, and why not? And you do find, um, sort of, you do find cholesterol in the artery walls. In fact, um, I suppose um, one, one of the things that happened to me um, um, when I was at university, uh, being, being trained in medicine, was um, uh, was given a, sh a small group tutorial by by a, a researcher called Elspeth Smith. He's a female cardiovascular researcher. So it's like unicorns in those days. Uh, and she just mentioned um, LDL cannot cross the endothelium. Um, and at the time, I had no idea what LDL was, and I didn't really know what the endothelium was, but. It was sort of something about the way she said it, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? And that set me off on a very, very long, long search into what is actually happening, why LDL can't pass from the bloodstream into the arterial wall. And, and, um, uh, and that's kind of where it all kicked off in my brain, I think. And we've, we've been sold the idea that uh, eating cholesterol from eggs or prawns will raise your blood cholesterol and that raised blood cholesterol will increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. Is this a myth? Well, it was found out very early on, in fact, that, um, well, of course, we don't have cholesterol in our bloodstream. Um, so that kind of knocks the entire theory into touch in the first, uh, first base, really. Um, 
but what we do, you know, when you eat when you eat cholesterol, it, cholesterol is a molecule. It's got a specific chemical formula. It, it's absorbed from the bowel. It's absorbed into um, another form of lipoprotein called a chylomicron, uh, and it travels around the body. But it'd be very early on, in fact, Ansel Keys, who's kind of the um, the godfather of the entire diet heart cholesterol hypothesis, found that uh, however much cholesterol he fed human beings, it made absolutely no difference to their inverted commas cholesterol level in their blood. Now you think at that point someone would say hmm, that hypothesis doesn't seem to be uh, doesn't seem to be working very well, um, but he just changed it. He said, "Oh, it's saturated fat that um, raises cholesterol in the blood." Now. Uh, that didn't seem to cause people many problems, but of course, fat and cholesterol or fatty acids and cholesterol are completely different things. They have completely different functions. So why on earth would eating substance X raise the substance, you know, the level of substance Y in your body? What, what, what on earth do you think is going on? I mean, made even more ridiculous by the fact that how, unless you eat about 20 eggs a day, because the, the highest concentration of cholesterol as a, as a chemical exists in, in egg yolks and seafood. Um, why, why, you know, you could eat 20 eggs a day and stuff yourself with prawn sandwiches and you just about be eating as much cholesterol as you could possibly eat in your diet. So, so the idea that, that somehow or other you're, you're overwhelming your body's control over cholesterol, we'll call it cholesterol in your blood with the diet, it makes absolutely no sense because most people eat about a 20th of, of the amount of cholesterol they actually need. Your liver is producing cholesterol five grams a day every day. Why? Because your body needs a lot of cholesterol. So clearly, if you get a lot in your diet, the body will do what the body does. It just says, well, I'll stop making cholesterol because I don't need to because I'm getting it in the diet. And that's precisely what happens. So, so the entire hypothesis is, is it, it starts breaking down very early on and that you say, well, okay, so it's not cholesterol that raises blood cholesterol. We don't actually have blood cholesterol. It's not saturated fats have no connection to cholesterol, um, except very, very tenuously, incredibly tenuously, in in the, in the system, uh, in your body system. In fact, fats when you when you eat them, saturated fats, any fat when you eat it, is taken directly from the bowel. It's taken into a large lipoprotein called a chylomicron. This then goes directly into your bloodstream, doesn't pass through the liver. And, and as it passes fat cells and other cells, it loses all of its fats, all of its saturated fat, shrinks down and down and down and down and down until it becomes about a hundredth or a thousandth the size that it started at, at which point it's absorbed into the liver. So actually fats don't pass through the liver. They don't, they don't, they don't end up in your LDL. They're not connected to cholesterol in any way directly. So you have this kind of huge disconnect. How, how does that happen then? And, and once you immediately start looking at this, you think, hold on, this is all just beginning to make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And yet we've been sold, millions of us have been told to take statins uh, to stop you making cholesterol. Uh, do they work? Well, they stop you making cholesterol because um, some very clever people worked out the synthesis of cholesterol which is about a 25 or 20 step process in your liver. And it starts with acetyl CoA and blah, 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 and then moves on to various new chemicals and various enzymes come in to change the structure of, of the acetyl CoA as it moves through um, you know, chemical transfer to chemical transfer. So there's, there's one thing called an acetyl CoA, um, sorry, coenzyme Q3 
is one of the early stage enzymes that does one of the early stage transformations, um, which sort of, if you like, um, stops the, uh, the trunk of the tree and stops it growing into a full tree. So it's kind of stopped two feet off the ground and it never grows into a full tree because cholesterol is not the only thing that is produced in this pathway. It branches off and produces many other substances, a lot of which are actually quite critical to human functioning. So once you start blocking cholesterol synthesis, you are interfering in quite a significant way with human biochemistry. And does it lower risk for cardiovascular disease? Well, I, I believe that statins do actually lower the risk of cardiovascular disease by, um, uh, I, would, I would say, a disappointingly small amount for those who are the supporters of it. Um, but they do. But of course, the, the reason why they do, in, in my opinion, and this is shared by a number of other people, is that they have an awful lot of what they call off-target effects. They don't just reduce cholesterol synthesis. I mean, there are no drugs that are absolute, well, there probably are drugs that are absolutely clean. But you can get a drug like aspirin that was started as a it, to reduce fever in people who had flu and stuff like that. It was then discovered to have effects on, on blood coagulation, so it's used to prevent heart attacks. And now it's being used to treat cancer. And once you start looking, once drugs start working in the body, they always have all sorts of different effects. The last time I bothered counting, statins had 36 off-target or use the scientific term pleiotropic effects. Uh, one, of, one of which is actually quite quite powerfully stimulates a, uh, a chemical called nitric oxide, which um, which is is a potent anticoagulant. So, in my my uh, belief is that statins uh, have the effects that they have through non-cholesterol or non-LDL lowering uh, effects. Now, when I came into nutrition, uh, one was meant to have a cholesterol level, whatever that actually means, uh, below six. And then it sort of crept down to about five. Uh, is there a downside of having too low a cholesterol as measured? Well, in the very extreme, there's a condition called Smith-Levy-Opitz syndrome, where um, genetically you don't produce very much cholesterol at all. And, um, and children born with this syndrome have their brains don't fuse properly. They don't, they don't, in fact, their brains aren't made properly. They end up with uh, severe mentally, mental defects um, and they die very young. So, um, so that's clear. Um, now, there has been a lot of work showing that if you have a low LDL level, low cholesterol level, whatever term you want to use, that your chances of dying of many other conditions, such as uh, your chances of getting various cancers, your chances of getting infectious diseases, your chance of getting liver disease. There's a whole series of things where people have a low cholesterol level. They are more likely to suffer from these diseases. Now, this has been, um, obviously, the pro sort of cholesterol hypothesis, pro statin people have looked at this and said, ah, oh, yes, well, what, what the problem is that they've got other other, uh, they've got an underlying disease that lowers their cholesterol, and it's the underlying disease that causes this increased mortality at a low LDL level. But I mean, many researchers have looked at this, and, and it's just been essentially discounted. I mean, I was looking at a study in um, from Austria, a huge study, 150,000, no, it was 100, yeah, it was 150,000 people studied over 15 years. And what they found was that the highest mortality rates, i.e., the, the, the greatest risk of death, was at the lowest cholesterol stroke LDL levels, that, that was, it wasn't a huge difference. I mean, we're not talking you know, tripling of risk or dying 40 years earlier, but, but the, the finding is consistent and it's consistent across an awful lot of studies. 
which is that having a low cholesterol level, a low LDL level, is associated in many, many studies with an increased risk of dying prematurely. So, you know, the, and even when you look at, um, there's work done in the Netherlands by one of the most sort of um, zealots, zealoty, uh, what's, the, what's the word for being a zealot? Zealot-like <laughs> proponents, um, uh, Professor Seibrands, who looked at, what they decided to look at was people who had familiar hypercholesterolemia, familiar hyper-LDLemia, and looked back over time, like 200 years, and looked at the death certificates and things, because this is a genetic disease. If your parents have it, you have a 50% chance of having it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and what they found was that over a period of about 200 years, that on average, the people with familiar hypercholesterolemia, very high LDL levels, lived uh, just the same amount of time as everybody else. And in fact, some of the, some of the what they call the strands, if you like, they weren't all the same type of genetic condition. Some of them lived longer. And in fact, prior to the introduction of antibiotics in the 19th century, people with familiar hypercholesterolemia lived considerably longer than everybody else. And um, um, you, you may have heard of Uffe Ravniskov, who's been a statin cholesterol critic for a long time. He set up the International Network of Cholesterol Skeptics, which is otherwise called THINKS. Uh, and he, he's shown that um, LDL is actually acts as a very potent uh, antimicrobial. It, it, it locks onto viruses, it locks onto bacteria, uh, and that way neutralizes them and allows white blood cells to come and kill them. So, so uh, people with low uh, levels of LDL are more susceptible to infections. Um, so there's an awful lot of things going on here. I'm not in general talking about huge differences because the vast majority of people have an LDL that's between you know, 20% or whatever it is of each other. And at those sort of levels, there's not a lot of difference one way or the other. But very low levels are clearly damaging to people. Now, talking about what those levels are, there was a paper this year that looked at biomarkers that predicted Alzheimer's. And the two best biomarkers was a raised homocysteine, uh, a, a topic I'd love to come to in a minute, and yeah. a low cholesterol. And in that case, the total cholesterol below four was an extremely good predictor of developing Alzheimer's. So yeah, what is I mean, the level? Do we, do we say below four is bad news and above six is bad news? Or, you know, because obviously, yeah. you know, people come to me all the time with their cholesterol levels at six or 6.5 or whatever, and they want to know what to do. Yes. Well, uh, uh, I think that um, I'm not entirely sure where the level is, but as you say, um, once you start getting below a total cholesterol of four, which is probably which is lower than you would find on average in, you know, just about any any population ever studied. You start you do start moving into uh, risks of, uh, of of appears to be Alzheimer's and other other neurological conditions, including things like Parkinson's, which are associated with low LDL levels, um, and um, it, which makes perfect sense in a way because um, your neurons and your synapses, your synapses particularly, are the most cholesterol rich. Um, tissue, whatever the exact term is for synapse, in your body. They're almost entirely made of cholesterol, nerve synapses. Your memory is basically a whole bunch of synapses all communicating with each other. So if you've got a low cholesterol level and there's a lack of cholesterol available for the brain, it's not entirely surprising that you're going to find that your brain doesn't work so well. And, um, you know, and therefore, when that's found out, I was looking at, I was looking at a Chinese study and one from South Korea, maybe the same study, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly which study it was, but it was very clear that the, the strongest, uh, I think the strongest indicator for 
developing Alzheimer's just having a low cholesterol level. So now um, all the juice has been squeezed out of the now off-pattern um, statins. Uh, no. We are being pitched with a new superstatin, a clizaran, made by no. Novartis, who have amazingly teamed up with the NHS to give it to 300,000 people with, as far as I can see, no evidence of benefit at all uh, to see what happens and count that as a trial. There's no placebo group, of course, but that doesn't seem to matter. What's your view on this new... It's an injectable, isn't it? Super statin. Yes, it's an injectable. It's well, you can call it. It's not statin at all. Obviously, it's, it operates through a completely different mechanism. Um, don't ask me what PCSK nine stands for, because that's what it is. Um, it, I can never remember. It's one of these incredibly complicated things. But basically, if you have an LDL floating around in the bloodstream, the only way to get it inside a cell is to have an LDL receptor created within the cell that locks onto the LDL molecule, and then the entire receptor and LDL complex is dragged into the cell, at which point the LDL is broken down and the cholesterol comes out and blah, blah, blah. And in most cases, the, the receptor is broken down as well by the PCSK9 enzyme thing. Um, and if you inhibit the enzyme, then the receptor is not broken down. So it's then free to travel to the surface of the cell, and then it's free to grab onto another LDL molecule. So essentially, you get to reuse the receptors again and again and again, and they keep you on shuffling to the cell surface, grabbing LDL, bringing it back in, and another one pops out. So you can lower the LDL by 70, 80%, uh, you know, really huge amounts compared to statins. But of course, the mechanism of action is, is completely different. And these medications are, because they're basically monoclonal antibodies, so they affect the gene function of your cells, a bit like the mRNA viruses. They, they force yourself to do something different. Um, they, they can't be taken orally because they would just break down in the stomach. So they have to be injected. Um, and the, the, there's a couple of them have been launched before in Kusaran, uh, Ripatha, and you know, I can't remember the bloody names anymore, but um, uh, they had to be injected every two weeks, but this one has to be injected every six months, which is a, obviously an advantage. The disadvantage uh, purely financially is they're mind-bogglingly expensive compared to statins. Um, and, and essentially, yes, that's the, the Inclisaran has been launched with no data that it has any benefit whatsoever, other than that it lowers LDL levels. And somehow or other, the Novartis seems to manage to convince the NHS that this is a great thing. Um, here's a hugely expensive thing. We have no uh, evidence that it provides any benefit whatsoever. Um, let's spend hundreds of millions of pounds prescribing it to people. How expensive is it? I don't actually know because they won't tell you because they blocked it out. I had a look at the um, the nice report on it and um, and when they did the cost effectiveness bit, uh, is it, where, the, where the costs were, there were just black boxes. Um, so I've no idea how expensive it is, but I do know that the, the ones before, the Rapatha, was it's about um, going to cost about £8,000 a year. So you can imagine if everybody has got a high cholesterol level in the UK, which is considered to be about 15 million people, you know, multiply 8,000 by 15 million and, um, and you're reaching uh, about 120 billion a year. A nice, um, nice little gravy train there. So, it, it, well, it, it's just, yeah. it's just bonkers. I mean, yeah. the amount of money involved in this, if people, you know, if a million people took it, it'd be 8 billion a year which is just, you know, these figures are, 
was that a famous American uh, politician said a billion, you talk a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon you're adding up to real money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so if cholesterol and LDL is really not causing heart disease, what is the cause of heart disease or cardiovascular right. disease? Well, that's what I've spent 35 years looking at. Um, and, uh, I must admit, I went down so many um, blind alleyways and fell into so many rabbit holes over the years. I thought I'm never, this is never going, I'm never going to work this out. Um, but I think the answer is when I, when I was looking for our cause, sorry, not our cause, when I was looking for the cause of heart disease, I just wasn't getting anywhere. And it eventually dawned on me. And in fact, I was tapped on the shoulder by a very brilliant man called Paul Roche, sadly, who died earlier on this year. Um, he set up the American Institute of Stress and just, you know, he's just a genius, really. Uh, I was at a conference. He tapped me on the shoulder and said, basically, You've got to stop looking for causes. You've got to start looking at process, which kind of at the time I thought, what's he talking about? <laughs> so he's off on one of his, his mad loops again. But I realized that actually you couldn't, there wasn't, there is no the cause. There's many, many things. And one of the analogies that I use now is to is say that, um, which is not quite super accurate, is if you're going to get rust on the paintwork of your car, the first thing you have to do is, is damage the paintwork in some way. Yeah, I realized I had alpha studs in my past, which just rusted automatically the moment you bought them. But, um, and then you've got to say as well, because until you've damaged the paintwork of the car, the water and salt and whatever doesn't reach the metal. So no rusting process can happen. And you can say, what's, what's the cause of damage to the paintwork on a car well you can think of off the top of your head you could think of a thousand things that can damage the paintwork of your car and so this is more how my thinking eventually got to as well okay so what's going on is that you're damaging in some way you're damaging the lining of the blood vessels in your arteries and that triggers the process of blood clotting and that then the blood clot that forms on the artery wall following the area of damage to the artery wall becomes the focus for what they, the plaque, the, the, the artery uh, atherosclerotic plaque. So essentially what you're saying is that blood clots are or are converted into plaques within the artery wall. And as you get more, um, if you get more clots form at that point, then you get plaque growth over the years. So essentially you have an area of damage, repair occurs, the area of damage is, and most people have just completely got rid of, but if there isn't completely got rid of, it becomes a kind of weakness, an area of weakness. And therefore that becomes a place where blood clots are more likely to form. And then as they form a, on a repeated basis, the plaque grows. And eventually in the end, what happens is you have a, a big plaque, which kind of what they call ruptures. And that rupture triggers the final blood clot that blocks the blood vessel completely and leads to strokes and heart attacks and other areas of damage in your body. So the, that process itself is quite simple, um, I think, to, to, to understand. So it's, it's clotting. It's really a clotting theory of cardiovascular disease. Yes. Well, it, it's not my theory. You know, it, I like to think I've brought a few things to bear on it, but it was first, um, it was first proposed in 1852 in Austria, Vienna, by Karl von Rokitansky. He actually called it the encrustation hypothesis. But he, he was looking at blood clots, he, not blood clots, he was looking at plaques in arteries. So people who say that there was no such thing as heart disease before the beginning of the 20th century, I say, well, what, what on earth was he looking at then? 
um, in people who died in accidents. And, and, and he was saying, what I'm seeing here is very clearly is, is blood clots in various stages of, of repair and adaptation and change, if you like. That's what I'm looking at. Um, and um, the problem that he had very early on was that his rival pathologist, Rudolf Verkau, who's a very, very famous man, and he's got all sort of Verkau institutes in Austria and Germany, was also looking at uh, plaques. And he said, but the problem we have is that, that they are forming beneath the layer of endothelium. The endothelium is a single layer of cells that line your artery walls. So it's a bit and like, the, made, is it a bit like the skin of your arteries, so to speak? The well, it's sort of like the skin of your arteries, except your skin can replace itself from bottom up. Mm-hmm. Your skin is always growing. So there's new cells growing and then gradually they push up and push up and become thinner and keratinized and then flake off. So, yes, it's sort of like the skin, except obviously the repair cannot come from underneath because there are no replacement endothelial cells underneath. Um, There is only one layer of cells and nothing underneath that except what what goes into the artery wall itself. Um, So so our workout said, well, how does a, a blood clot end up the other side of the endothelial cell lining, mm-hmm. to which Rokitansky had no uh, obvious reply because, as Rokitansky said, we well, can't get blood clots forming within an artery wall. They can only happen in within the blood constituents themselves, and uh, and that was a kind of bit of a bit of a hammer blow for Rokitansky. So the hypothesis kind of kind of fell apart, but it was resurrected. It's been resurrected again and again and again. If you look back, although uh, it's what I call the ghost in the machine. If you look hard, if you look at what people have said over the years there's an awful lot of people have gone you know we're looking at clotting here we're looking at what look like blood clots we're seeing the start of things as blood clots there's a, there's a researcher called Duggan in the 1940s who, who promoted it Ronald Ross promoted it very heavily in the 70s the lady I was talking about Elspeth Smith she wrote and I, you know, I can't remember verbatim but basically said the entire process of atherosclerotic plaque formation is due to blood clotting from start to finish she wrote words not exactly those words, but words that exact exact meaning. So, so there's an awful lot of people who've looked at this. So, how does and this endothelium, this sort of skin, um, end up over the clot, so to speak? Oh well, that's obviously the question that Verkar couldn't answer, isn't it? Yes. So you've damaged the artery wall, and a blood clot's formed on top of it. It's then shaved down, obviously, because the body shaves down blood clots once they've done their blood clotty thing and prevented damage. And then, of course, what you have is a blood clot sitting on top of the artery wall. Well, what happens to it? Well, it obviously can't break off and travel down the artery. It's just going to cause a stroke or a heart attack further down the artery. So that cannot be allowed to happen. Uh, I've asked, this is a kind of um, experiment in logical thinking. I've done this um, to people. Is So what can the body do with it? How can it be repaired? And, and people sort of scratch and say, well, there was a time when people thought endothelial cells grew in from the side. So, you know, you, they gradually kind of overcovered it from the sides. Um, the answer is that they, that's not what happens because that can't happen because once an endothelial cell is a mature endothelial cell, it isn't doing anything else. It can't divide again and it won't, it won't bud more endothelial cells. So you do have a problem. Where on earth does a layer covering layer come from? And the answer is, well, it comes from the only place it can possibly come from, which is within the bloodstream itself. So there are within the blood floating around things called endothelial progenitor cells. And these cells are produced in the bone marrow 
and they float around in the blood. And if there's an area of damage to any artery, they're attracted to that area, they stick to it, and they grow and form a new layer of endothelium. And we can see this happening if you, you know, if you have stents put into arteries in your heart after you've had a heart attack, so the stent opens itself. That's kind of wire mesh that holds the artery apart. Well, obviously you have quite a large area of damage there. And actually you can see that following this or following um, what they call, when they stick the balloon in and open the, the artery up to get the stent in, that the endothelial progenitor cell population drops to almost zero because the endothelial cells have all ended up stuck on this area of damage. And then the bone marrow produces more and more of them uh, in order to, 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 to cover up the area. So basically a blood clot forms on the artery wall after this damage, then, it, then it's shaved down or, or I suppose it could obviously completely block your artery, at which point you drop dead and you become a pathology specimen. It's then shaved down. Then the new endothelial cells, endothelial progenitor cells arrive. They grow over the top of the clot. And in this way, the clot is now sitting inside the artery wall. And at which point, obviously, in general terms, is that the repair systems come into play. There's, there are cells called macrophages, which are white cells, which I call the dumpster trucks. Essentially, they they're a bit like amoebas. They they clump and chew off bits of, of um, alien material, draw them into themselves, and once they're kind of half full or full, they leave head head to the lymph glands. At which point they're broken down, and all the breakdown products are excreted in your kidneys or your or your, or your liver or wherever they are going to be excreted. And the other fascinating thing I find is that the, um, the endothelial progenitor cells, as they are relatively immature cells do not necessarily become endothelial cells. Some of them go down a different route. They actually become white blood cells. They become monocytes and then macrophages. So after a, uh, an episode of damage to your artery wall, you not only get the covering layer that appears and covers it over, you also get the, um, the repair cells arriving at the same time to chomp it up and get rid of it. So the obviously... Yeah, the, the, no, just the human body is so clever it's just extraordinary i think i'd like to read you a very brief excerpt in my first book written in 1981 the whole health manual it says we now know that arterial deposits are not the result of too much cholesterol floating around in the blood and sticking to walls artery deposits alone do not cause heart attacks the other condition which may or may not be right the other condition needed is to put simply sticky blood that might have been a lucky break but <laughs> It sounds like I was oh. on the right track. Well, you were on the right track. Well, the thing is that sticky blood um, is, is um, you know, just apparently changing subjects, but as if by magic coming back to the same subject. When, when we start looking at COVID-19 and people are asking, how does it cause blood clots? Well, well, the first thing that it does is the virus gets into endothelial cells in your, in your blood system, also in your lungs, but in your, in your blood vessels. It multiplies in them and then it dies. The cells die as the virus bursts out. So obviously, once you've got endothelial cells dying, this becomes a focus for arterial damage, blood clots form. But also the immune system and the clotting system trigger together. In, in many animals, in many primitive animals, the, the immune system and the clotting system are the same thing. And in fact, our immune and clotting systems are very, very closely related together. When you have an infection of any sort, your blood is more likely to clot. And that's through, through a thing called a cytokine. It doesn't really matter exactly what the process is. But so essentially you have this, 
connection going on. And people who have got more clotting factors in their blood are more likely to die from, from, um, from heart disease. Mm. Um, and they're more likely to develop rapidly growing atherosclerotic plaques. Because if you looked at um, haemophilias, before the clotting factors were produced so that the haemophiliacs could be injected with factors eight and whatever factor they were missing, if haemophiliacs had about 20% the rate of death from cardiovascular disease or, or atherosclerotic heart disease as the surrounding population. Uh, now there's, there's, a, a, there's a link here, uh, both, both with the um, you know, COVID and also heart disease. Um, yeah. as, you, as you know, I was a student of uh, Dr. Linus Pauling and I filmed him in yeah. 1984. Uh, I think it was the last film ever made. And I'm going to play a, a brief excerpt, uh, one of me explaining his lipoprotein A hypothesis. Yeah. And um, that's followed by a few words uh, from the man himself. Uh, saying, do. Saying yeah, what we great, should do. A great man. Thank you. I hope you've been impressed by the logic of this new approach to the treatment and prevention of cardiovascular disease. It involves the addition of vitamin C and lysine supplements. The lysine prevents lipoprotein A from sticking to the walls of the arteries, and vitamin C helps to lower circulating levels of lipoprotein A. Every person who is at risk for one reason or another from heart disease uh, take perhaps not only the vitamin C, five or six grams of vitamin C per day, but also uh, two grams or more of lysine per day. Two grams may well be uh, effective uh, prophylactically uh, for people who have not had heart attacks, but larger amounts might be needed for uh, people who are at greater risk for cardiovascular disease. So, Malcolm, what are your thoughts about this lipoprotein A vitamin C hypothesis? Well, uh, I like it very much. In fact, I've written about it several times. I mean, essentially, what Pauling is saying is that um, it, it's a story with kind of different strands to it. But essentially, um, humans can't make vitamin C. We can't synthesize it ourselves. Almost all animals can. We can't. Uh, why we can't, I don't really know. We, we lost this. 40 ability 40 million years ago apparently there's some great apes fruit bats guinea pigs can't do it as well animals that can't produce vitamin c vitamin c has many functions but one of the one of the functions here possibly most critical is that the um, is that vitamin c uh, allows the body to make a substance called collagen uh, and collagen are like the metal bars in um, in concrete if you like um, so they hold your body together blood vessels themselves are under, under a huge amount of stress continuously so they contain a lot of collagen. And if your body stops making collagen properly, your blood vessels start to break apart. So one of the first signs of vitamin C deficiency in scurvy is bleeding gums because your blood vessels are starting to leak blood. Now, clearly leaking blood is not a good thing. If you keep leaking blood, you die of blood loss, which is why you die in scurvy in the end. It causes other problems, but hemorrhaging and death from hemorrhaging is the, is the primary cause of death. Um, so when you're starting to low light, reduce your vitamin c levels and you're starting to not produce enough collagen you've got a plug and the plug is this lipoprotein which um which um linus pauling is talking about it's called lipoprotein a now almost there's no doctors ever heard of this substance i've spoken to 
But essentially what it is, is actually LDL, ironically, with an extra protein attached to it. And when this, when this LDL is basically LDL, LPA is an LDL with a carrying, it's really all it is is part of the blood coagulation system at this point. Because this protein, if there's a damaged area of blood vessel, it, it is attracted to it. It forms very strong linkage to the underlying artery wall and locks the LDL particle into the to the clot and makes it very difficult to remove. Makes it very difficult to remove because that um, extra protein, which is called apolipoprotein A, which is why LPA is so called, um, is uh, is almost identical to another substance that's closely involved in the breakdown of blood clots, which is called plasminogen. Anyway. If you can't break down the blood clots because this apolipoprotein A acts as a blocker to the blood clots being broken down, then whatever clot forms on the artery wall at this point becomes very much more difficult to remove. And therefore, you get a bigger blood clot, a more difficult to remove blood clot, which will essentially become a larger plaque in your artery wall. And so we know that people who've got high levels of LPA are three to four times more likely to die from heart disease, I mean, which is just, which, which of course is ironic. You know, I say that LDL doesn't cause heart disease, and here I'm now saying LDL causes heart disease, but it's not LDL; it's um, it's um, it's LPA. And if you and, have um, if you have an LDL test, how do you know your apparent LDL is not lipoprotein A? You don't. So we could actually be sort of measuring the wrong thing, kind of. Well, I think we are measuring the wrong thing. I mean, uh, your LPA level is generally about 20% of your LDL level. Mm -hmm. Some people have more LPA, LPA than LDL, but most people it's lower than that. But of course, if you're measuring, if you're looking for LDL particles, well, you, you can mistake them for LPA. If you're looking for ApoB100 lipoprotein particles, then LPA has got them on them too. A few people, including Matthias Rath, who worked with Linus Pauling, and I was slightly, um, slightly uh, hesitant about mentioning his name for his reputation precedes him, but um, he did work in the 1990s where he said, right, I'm going to look at atherosclerotic plaques in the sections of uh, removed arteries from people having coronary artery bypasses. And he said, well, what I'm looking for is this, this specific protein, the apolipoprotein A, because I know if that's there, it must be LPA I'm looking at and not LDL, because LDL does not have this protein attached. And what he found is in all the sections, essentially he was finding this protein A alongside the protein, apolipoprotein B. But when people have looked and found this apolipoprotein B100, which is attached to LDL, they've gone, oh, look at the LDL molecules. I said, well, it, you know, I, you don't know you're looking at LDL molecules. You're looking at, you're most likely looking at LPA molecules. Mm -hmm. You can't, if you're finding apolipoprotein A, it must be LPA. It can't be LDL. And the people that have looked have always found this high concentration of this protein in atherosclerotic plaques. Ergo, it has to be LPA. Mm. And Linus Pauling, he proposed that having more vitamin C and also lysine might be the way to, uh, you know, to prevent um, too much LPA, but I don't think the lysine's been borne out so well in research. Well, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, he, he said it was basically it acted to stop the LPA linking to the damaged artery wall, and therefore you got less LPA 
accumulation and therefore the plaques were less damaging, um, which sort of makes sense, but I don't know if it's been seen, but the LPA itself, well, yes, I mean, vitamin C, if, if, you're, if you are in danger of having a low vitamin C level, at what level does that cause your blood vessels to start cracking? Well, probably at quite a low level, but, but you know, you don't want to be doing that. And if you've got a high LPA level, you certainly do not ever want to be going into vitamin C deficiency situations. So for people with a high LPA level, it makes absolute sense. And I would advise anyone with a high LPA level, although no one bothers measuring it. But if you ever did find someone who bothered measuring it, then, then it was high. Then I would take vitamin C every day, each and every day of my life. Definitely. Well, do, you, do you know the last NDS, National Diet and Nutrition Survey, uh, which measures in a cross-section of people, um, uh, plasma vitamin C, found that a, a mere um, 5% of those over 65, I'm not far off that, uh, actually had a kind of scurvy level below 11 micromole per litre. And that equates yeah. to 480,000 people in Britain. And by the way, they exclude in their survey anyone in a care home. So <laughs> we've just raised 25 no grand to do the first ever world study to look at what do people in care homes actually need. The RDA, which is the ridiculous dietary arbitrary, is 40 milligrams. And uh, uh, so, you know, we may need more as we get older. But what seems to... Uh, also have an effect on lowering LPA is niacin, vitamin B3. What's your yeah. view on what's your view on that? It's quite interesting. Well, it, yeah. yeah, well, it does seem to lower it a bit, um, which is interesting. And, and the niacin things have been back and forward. I think if if my my advice to people would be if you've got a high LPA and you take niacin and it goes down, great. If you you know if you've got a high LPA level and you take niacin, nothing happens, then probably give up because it's not, it's not for you, it's not working. Um, although there's no harm in taking it. But I think that, um, yeah, I mean, these, these vitamin levels, the RDAs were, were established in about 1823 or something. No, they weren't, no, because vitamins weren't discovered. The first vitamin yeah. structure was not discovered until about um, 1900, was it, if memory serves. But, but once they discovered how you know, scurvy was prevented by a very low dose, or like apparently prevented, they kind of gave up on saying, well, but what dose do you actually need what level do you actually need to prevent significant diseases? Well, no one's really looked at that. I mean, I went to vitamin B12 at one point, and my understanding is, and I've never had this contradicted, is that the level, it was 1947, and the, 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 uh, the level that was considered um, optimal in your bloodstream was set on seven patients in 1947, all of whom had pernicious <laughs> anemia, which means they had very low vitamin B12 levels. And it's never been reviewed ever since. So, I mean, the, the levels of vitamin that you need in your bloodstream is just, it just basically is nonsense science, isn't it? No one's really looked at it in any meaningful way. Now, B12, of course, is really coming to the fore now with Alzheimer's. And I'd like to read you another excerpt from my book in 81. One amino acid, methionine, breaks down into a toxic substance called homocysteine, this homocysteine theory put forward by Dr. McCulley in 1969 supposes that low levels of B vitamins is one of the primary causes of, well, I called it arteriosclerosis, apologies. If this is the case, right. pe people with arteriosclerosis would have low levels of B vitamins and high levels of homocysteine. What is yes. your view about homocysteine and cardiovascular disease? And what was the fate of Dr. Kilmer McCulley? That's an interesting story in its own right. 
Well, uh, Kilmer McCulley was working at Harvard University and publishing away. He, he found children with very high levels of homocysteine. He had a, a genetic problem with an enzyme. Don't ask me which enzyme. Um, and they were dying very young of heart disease. And so, you know, he had this population of, of hyper homocysteinemic children. And, and so he was looking at this and what you could do about it. And yes, uh, homocysteine is, is quite toxic in, in, in relatively low concentrations to the, the endothelial cells. I don't think he went further than saying what's the exact process going on here, but he was publishing away. And then the roof fell in as statins arrived. Basically, he was essentially unceremoniously booted out of Harvard, told he couldn't get any more research money. When he tried to find other jobs, he, he was hounded behind the scenes by Harvard, who were phoning people up and saying, do not give this man a job. This, by the way, I'm not just making this up. This was all published in the New York Times about four or five years ago, maybe longer than that now. And um, and the, the head of the American Heart Association, slightly ironically, given that organization's track record, said he'd never seen uh, an area that raised such hostility as anyone questioning the cholesterol hypothesis. And he felt Kimmer McCulley had been very poorly, poorly dealt with. And, and later on, the homocysteine um, hypothesis has been accepted as being, if you like, our cause. So homocysteine is our cause of heart disease. It damages artery walls. It, it, it causes accelerated artery wall damage and blood clotting. And, and yes, the B vitamins, but of course, just moving very far, slightly sideways, and I mentioned this in the book, that um, of course, uh, it's also been found that people with Alzheimer's disease have high homocysteine levels. And, um, and if people who, who are given, and there was research from Cambridge, are given, oh God, I can never remember the exact ones, vitamin B1, 6, and 9, I think it is, um, that, uh, that, that you can actually prevent further progression of, of brain tissue degeneration. Um, and, and of course, further ironically, another group called the vitamin B collaboration you would see such a thing existed who are the same people as are the cholesterol treatment trialist collaboration did a meta-analysis on on the use of b vitamins in 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 alzheimer's and concluded it didn't do any good now I've, i'm just putting in fact so ironically i'm just putting together a blog about this saying that that was the most ridiculous flawed meta-analysis that i have ever seen so it was a hatchet. It was, it was a hatchet. It was a hatchet job. Yeah, I mean, they did things. You know, they, they said they had twenty-two thousand people they looked at. You start looking at the actual study itself, and you find that they're only in seven thousand of the cases did they measure cognitive function at the beginning, at the end yeah. of the study. So yeah. they've no idea. So the vast majority of people they didn't even know cognitive function changed or otherwise. And then and then they deliberately excluded people who already had cognitive problems, and they excluded this group. And it was just. It, it was basically if you were, if you set out to to create an utterly ridiculous biased analysis of, of of the benefit of B vitamins, this is what you would do. And yet, as soon as that was published, the whole B vitamin movement, which was gathering pace, was killed, stone dead in the water. You yeah, know? and then what, what, what do we have now? We have a drug that's just been approved in America. I can't remember the name of it uh, by the FDA for the use of treatment of Alzheimer's which has absolutely no evidence of any clinical benefit whatsoever. Now, one of, the big, one of the big pharma reps approached Professor David Smith. Uh, we've done a podcast with him. 
and said, because he's achieved 73% less brain shrinkage in one year, no further memory loss, and, and uh, uh, 30%. This is in a population of pre-dementia. We call it mild cognitive impairment. Yeah. 30% at the end of one year had a zero rating on a clinical dementia scale. Anyway, mm. this big pharma guy says, you know, if we could patent this, this is a multi-billion dollar drug, but we can't. So to be honest, so stuff it. Yeah, stuff it. I mean, it is it is extraordinarily depressing that unless a pharmaceutical company think they can make billions, mm. not only do they not pursue it, mm -hmm. they they actively crush it. And now and the terrible, yeah, the terrible thing I'm getting now with many clients maybe they have arthritis, they're put on a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, plus they're put on a proton pump inhibitor. These are the oh, antacids. So, so many people are being put on these antacids, which drive down B12 absorption, drive up homocysteine, increase risk of Alzheimer's. I mean, this combo of high homocysteine plus proton pump inhibitor drugs, is that you know, a significant risk factor for cardiovascular disease? Well, proton pump inhibitors also do another thing, which is that they inhibit the synthesis of a of a compound called nitric oxide. Uh, nitric oxide um, is the single most important uh, chemical in the body for protection of your endothelial cells, your whole cardiovascular system. Um, it was discovered about twenty five years ago, um, and no one thought a gas could exist in the human body because well it yeah. probably obviously doesn't exist as a gas but it's no you know minus if you like yeah. um and uh and this this uh it stimulates endothelial growth it stimulates the production of endothelial uh progenitor cells in the in the in the um bone marrow um it sits within what they call a, a glycocalyx which is a protective layer on all endothelial cells it's anticoagulant very strongly anticoagulant it's just the sort of the magic substance, and um, uh, and proton pump inhibitors inhibit the production of nitric oxide through a complex metabolic pathway, and uh, and increase the risk of cardiovascular disease by and, sun so doing and, and sunlight promotes it, doesn't it? Oh, sunlight, yeah. Well, this is one of these things. I'm I'm actually pro sunlight as well. Of course, I would be. <laughs> I'm pro salt, pro sunlight, um, anti uh, uh, high carb, blah blah blah. Um, Yes, sunlight. You have nitrates in your skin, and sunlight on the skin causes the release of nitric oxide, and it creates nitric oxide synthesis, which lowers your blood pressure by as much, if not more, than most blood pressure lowering medications. It increases nitric oxide synthesis, and, and studies from um, from um, Denmark um, showed that that women who who, who sunbathe frequently, the the reduction in risk of overall mortality is the same. Is the same degree as the increase in risk of smoking 20 cigarettes a day. So staying out of the sun carries with it a risk similar to smoking 20 cigarettes a day. And that is, they believe, primarily down to nitric oxide synthesis from the exposure to your skin by and, the and, sun. And, and sun on the skin also uh, uh, sort of converts cholesterol into vitamin D. Uh, is uh, it... Yeah. If you've driven your cholesterol down with statins or these new uh, PSK9 inhibitor injections, uh, is that going to make it less able for you to make vitamin D from the sun? And is vitamin D itself oh, well, a risk factor it for heart disease? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, vitamin D, you know, I mean, I'm a great vitamin D 
believer as well. It's an amazing substance. <laughs> so it's not really a vitamin, it's a hormone, I think. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the structure of vitamin D, it comes from cholesterol. All of our hormones, our hormones are all based on cholesterol as the backbone structure. So if, if someone showed you a picture of cholesterol and then showed you a picture of, say, estrogen or testosterone, you'd say that that's the same thing. You know, they are incredibly similar. So all your hormones, your important hormones and cortisol and just everything is, you know, it just comes from cholesterol. So if you start whacking your cholesterol level down, you're really struggling to make all sorts of important things. And possibly the most important is vitamin D. And for whatever reason, it's the action of sunlight on the skin that makes us have vitamin D, which is why it's called a vitamin because we can't, that's the way we synthesize it, which is why it, it became seen as a vitamin because in the Victorian times, people were working in factories and never going outside and living in tenements on the ground virtually, mm. where when people were becoming vitamin D deficient, it sort of hadn't been seen before that time in people. So um, so I don't think it really is a vitamin. It's, it's a hormone. It's a hormone that is produced by the action of sunlight on the skin. And yes, if you take a PCSK in it, you're not going to have any bloody cholesterol left to make anything out of. So, you know, the, the you know words almost fail me. This, this hypothesis is damaging in all different directions. It causes us to stop doing all sorts of things that we should be doing to make ourselves healthy. It's absolutely mad. Now, what about omega-3 fish oils? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a bit wishy-washy about them. Um, they appear to do. Um, they appear to do good, and the main way that they appear to do good is slightly through completely different mechanisms. You may, but we're going to disagree with me on this. But um, cardiac conduction, the conduction of the of the electrical um, of the electrical messages in your heart, which obviously quite important for keeping you alive. If you have certain of the omega fatty acids, like omega six, interferes with uh, the the transmission of electrical impulses because cell membranes are where they pass through. Omega-3s improve that. Omega-3s also have quite an important um, effect on, on making platelets, which are small blood clotting cells, less likely to stick together. So it decreases blood clotting, which is why some people believe, and I think this may be true, is that Eskimos, you, know, you can't call them Eskimos now, can you? The Inuit, they're probably not called the Inuit now, are they? They're probably called North American Aboriginals or something. Um, that um, they they're very prone to nosebleeds because they eat so much fish. They have so many omega threes that their blood clotting is is switched from you know high clotting to low clotting, and that's what protected them against heart disease. Because in that population, when they were first sort of came across, they just didn't have any cardiovascular disease at all. Mm. What about hydrogenated fat? I remember uh, Denmark removed them, and uh, it seemed like there was quite a big drop in cardiovascular disease after that. Oh, yeah, well, you I mean you're talking about trans fats, really? Here, yes, trans fats, damaged well, fats. Well, fats, fatty acids are one of the simplest molecules in the body. They're, they're a chain of, of, of carbon atoms in a, in a long line, with each carbon atom has got two hydrogen atoms attached. At one end, you've got CH3 carbon and one carbon, three hydrogen atoms. Okay. And at the other end, you've got COOH, which is a hydroxyl group, which is what actually makes fats, fatty acids, because that OH group is mildly acidic. And they can be of different lengths. They can be like, you can have four, you can have eight or six or 10. The commonest length is 16 carbon atoms, and that's called palmitic acid. 
saturated fats mean that every carbon atom has two hydrogen atoms attached to it in that chain. An unsaturated fat means that some of the carbon atoms only have one hydrogen atom attached and there's a double bond between the, the carbon atoms where that occurs. So when you're talking about an omega-3, the double bond occurs three from the end. Alpha to omega is how it's right. Alpha one end, omega the other. Omega-3, three from the omega end. Omega-6, six from the omega end. That's where the naming system is, is put together. And um, if you have more than one double bond, it's called a polyunsaturated fat. Now, these bonds normally in nature are what they call cis. In other words, the, there's a kind of gap on one side. So both hydrogen atoms are missing on one side, which means that actually makes the fatty acid bend more easily. So that's why polyunsaturated fats are liquid when they are at colder temperature because they are bendier, whereas saturated fats are more rigid, which is why they you get butter and things are solid at room temperature. Um, and in order to make um, spreads out of unsaturated fats, they decided to, to put the, the double bond was a kind of kink bond, if you like. So the gap was on one side and the other hydrogen atom was missing on one side and the other. So you had a kind of kink gap. That's called a trans bond. They don't really exist in nature. They are an artificial creation by the chemical industry. And that's how you got margarine. And that's how you got a spreadable oil, essentially. That's how it happens. Um, but of course, these were considered super healthy because they were polyunsaturated fats. But they were actually polyunsaturated trans bond fats, mm. which once they got incorporated into your body, completely buggered up an awful lot of the systems. And they've been discovered to be pretty damned toxic. So, so this move from saturated, terribly unhealthy saturated fats to polyunsaturated fats ended up with flora and other such poisons that we mm. put into our body and killed people with. And that has been accepted. I'm not just over-egging this. Mm -hmm. We created these things because saturated fats were considered unhealthy and these things were the most unhealthy things you could put in your body virtually. So... In a nutshell, in part two of your excellent book, you unpack what you can do to avoid getting cardiovascular disease. Uh, so yeah. in a nutshell, what should we eat and or supplement? How should we live? Obviously, get out in the sunshine. Yeah. What's your, you know, in, in, in a sort of minute, if you had to tell someone. In a minute. This is yeah, what in a minute, I would say that, that you want to avoid negative stresses, stressors in your life, because negative stressors trigger your um you trigger your fight-flight response, which triggers a whole bunch of nasty things to happen to your cardiovascular system, increases your blood pressure, raises uh, the level of hormones that interfere with the repair systems and make your blood much more likely to clot. Because when you're under stress, it normally means you're about to be attacked. If you're about to be attacked, it means your blood should be ready to clot because you don't want to bleed to death. So you are hypercoagulable under stress, if you like. So avoid negative stressors. Go out in the sun. What you're going to eat is basically you're going to try and avoid also um, um, foods that raise your blood sugar levels because blood high blood sugar levels damage endothelial cells and mean you're much more likely to have blood clots, etc. So, so a, a low fat, so low fat, low carb, high fat diet is what you should be aiming for. Exercise is very good. Everyone says exercise is good. Exercise is good. You know. When it comes to supplementation, vitamin C, vitamin D, 
Some people say vitamin K2. I sort of agree with that. You can go wild on the supplements. But one of the things that you can take is also is to protect the protective layer of your over your endothelium is made of proteins and sugars. And if you can replace these proteins, chondroitin, hyaluronic acid, etc., these things can actually strengthen the protective layer covering your endothelium. And, Gl uh, glucosamine would be part of that? Yes, glucosamine. Yeah. Yeah. And these things are beneficial. I think that, um, you know, I've tried to not go mad in, in, in advising people because, you know, you can give, you get a lot of these books and you think, you yeah, know, well, that's fine, but I'm never going to do all of that. Mm. What about but magnesium? Would you? Magnesium help? is magnesium. The problem we have with magnesium, well, of course, PPIs lower your magnesium levels as well. Mm. So metprazole and pentoprazole and all those things. It's an un, unmentioned um, 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 vitamin, it's not vitamin, is it? Um, Mineral is it a mineral? It's a mineral, mineral yeah. An atom, isn't it? Um, yeah, there, there was a case in 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 um, in Israel. They most of their most of their um, drinking water comes from desalination plants, and as part of desalination, you take all of the bloody ions out—the sodium, the potassium, the everything, including magnesium—and it was pointed out to them that if no one's getting any magnesium, this is going to increase the risk of heart disease. And it was estimated that about six thousand excess deaths a year have been caused by low magnesium levels in Israel. So they've had to introduce it back into the drinking water mm. to get it back up. Now, how will you know if you've got high magnesium level? You don't. Mm. You could yeah. get it measured, but you then have to say, well, you've just got to make sure that, you know, your magnesium is in there. It, 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 it is a really important um, atom. Magnesium is an atom, isn't it? Yes. Um, uh, and, and it's, you know, a lot of things that have happened in the way that we live our lives now means that farming and intensive farming and all the chemical stuff they do to, to food rips out a lot of the vital stuff like this. Mm. And, and no one even thinks to put it back in. So, so, the, so the general advice I would advise my, my friend Zoe Harper and I is, you know, eat food that looks like food is a good advice. And, and if you have to read a list of ingredients on the side of a packet, probably don't eat it or eat it irregularly. Because we'll get everything we need from natural food sources grown from the healthy soil, if you like. Mm. And, and more and more people should be trying to do that because you will tend then to get everything you need in the correct proportions as well, which I think is important. Now, in the last uh, couple of minutes that we have, I was amused by this comment in your book. There are, I have discovered, that's you, uh, two areas of medicine that absolutely cannot be questioned. Number one, I will allow you to guess at not that difficult in truth. It's a word beginning with vaccines. And number two, and not that far behind, is the cholesterol hypothesis. So let's close by talking about COVID. You say it's a vascular disease, not just a respiratory disease. Yeah. Please elaborate. Yeah. Well, it, it, in a way, it's, um, you know, people are amazed that people are getting the respiratory problems when they were seriously ill. Not everyone gets this bad, obviously. And people were getting respiratory symptoms because of damage to the lung. And then after that, you know, some people seem to recover. And then many people were getting problems with kidney function. You know, their kidneys were getting, getting, getting badly damaged. They were developing blood clots, sort of having strokes and heart attacks, et cetera, et cetera. And things like myocarditis. And they were saying, well, how on earth can this be happening? So, well, at the time I was looking at, you know, things like bacteria and viruses causing, causing heart disease. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, what you have to do is you have to damage the lining of the blood vessel, basically the arteries, because that's where the major action happens. And, and many viruses, you know, influenza B and influenza A also do this if to a letter extent. 
So this is not a completely new thing for, for COVID, but essentially it's more extreme with COVID because COVID enters these cells highly preferentially because COVID has to enter the cell by using a, a, a gateway to get in. It hijacks the gateway. The gateway it hijacks is a thing called an ACE2 receptor. And ACE2 receptors are found in the lungs in high concentration, in the kidneys in high concentration, and in all blood vessels because the A in ACE is, an, is, is actually angiotensin, which is a, a hormone that is directly involved in blood pressure control, and relaxing and contracting arteries, and da 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 da. So it's commonly found in these blood vessels. So, so the blood vessels are the natural area of attack and destruction. So what you're getting is what you like to call a vasculitis. Vascular obviously means the blood supply system, itis means inflammation. And the other thing that happens, of course, is that the immune system starts to look at uh, the endothelial cells and says, don't like the look of them, they're harboring viruses. It starts killing them off. And this is when you get this thing called a cytokine storm and all these cytokines basically just means messenger molecules are saying, kill endothelial cells. Mm. And, um, and, and of course, at that point, then you get widespread blood clotting throughout the whole system. And, and that is what's happening in, in, in you know, bacterial infections that get into your bloodstream cause a thing called sepsis, which you've probably heard of. What is sepsis? Sepsis is the bacteria that are multiplying in your bloodstream release toxins called exotoxins that are released from the bacteria. They go straight to and attack the endothelial cells and really damage them. The endothelial cells die and blood clots form all around the body. It's called disseminated intravascular coagulation. Disseminated just means widespread intravascular within blood vessels coagulation blood clots, which is why you may have seen people who survived meningitis or meningococcal infection who've lost the tips of their nose and lost fingers and lost limbs because they've lost the circulation to their blood, to their, to their, to their, to their arms and legs and fingers and nose. And, and this is what's also happening to a degree, uh, well, quite a significant degree with COVID because it's the same process. It's, it's damaging, ripping apart the, the endothelial cells that lie in your blood vessels. With bacteria, it's exotoxins that are doing this. With COVID, it's the virus enters the endothelium and, and wipes them out that way. So it essentially, doesn't really. It's, it's the same underlying mechanism in both cases. So when would, COVID hit, sorry. No, no. I was just going to say that you know, obviously we're being told we all need to be vaccinated, and that's the and that's going to sort of cure the pandemic, so to speak. But. There's uh, these worrying reports, uh, albeit rare, of either thrombocytopenia, so clotting problems, or pericarditis. That seems to be coming up more with the, the Pfizer vaccine. So in these rare people, is COVID vaccination also a potential risk for cardiovascular disease? Well, of course, there's a potential risk um, because the, actually the spike protein itself has been found. And I'm not just, again, I don't make this stuff up. This is like Nature magazine, I think. Um, and the spike protein is pro-coagulant. In other words, you stick spike protein into blood and it, and it clots. But also, yes, if you're giving a vaccine and it's making cells make uh, spike proteins, the immune system is going to get a bit revved up and go, I don't like that very much. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it will start firing off at endothelial cells that it sees as producing damaging stuff. Is, is it as damaging as having the COVID-19 virus itself? No, I don't think it can be. But in some individuals, I mean, we are seeing, you know, blood clotting problems. We are seeing myocarditis, which means basically inflammation of the myocardium, which is the heart muscle cells. And we know that myocardial cells and pericardial cells, you don't need to know what they are, 
uh, are very prevalent in the heart and they're covered in ACE2 receptors. So it's hardly surprising that you're going to get some people getting a getting a reaction and a blood clotting reaction post-vaccination. It would be unlikely if they didn't. Now, how serious this is, I have no idea. But but I think it is, it's not, you know, we know the mechanisms of action here. They're not, they're not, they're not, these are not unknown things going on. We know that um, that if you start sticking, you know, stuff into cells that then make them produce alien materials that the immune system is not going to take terribly kindly to that. And we know that if the immune system gets going, the coagulation system kicks off. So, you know, I think you just have to be very, very careful with this because these these um, vaccines, I mean, I don't think any of them have got through clinical trials yet. I mean, they don't, they're not due to finish for about another 18 months. So we, we are in a, in a situation where they have been rushed through. And of course, when you rush something through with no phase one and no phase two safety studies as such, then, then you have to keep an eye out for stuff that could go wrong. And I think that, that, that we're not um, sufficiently um, concerned, if that's the correct word, uh, about the potential downsides um, that, that could happen from vaccination. And, and I think it's been seen, I think um, Taiwan just stopped young children from being vaccinated because of a worryingly high rate of myocarditis in these children. So, you know, we are seeing, we're, we're seeing some warning signs of, of things going on and and i think we just have to be very careful that we don't allow this kind of almost what i'd call them a sort of sort of mass hysteria it's not it's not mass hysteria it's not the right word this kind of mm. vaccines are the savior of mankind and we can't criticize them in any way vaccines are, are great things and and you know i'm not going to say no one should be vaccinated but i think you, you, you know you want to make sure that what you're doing is as safe as it possibly can be and you're not going to be making things as safe as it can possibly be if you are unwilling to even, you know, accept that there could be any possible problems associated with these vaccines. Is there anything uh, someone could do to maybe you know, mitigate that possible clotting or effects of vaccines? I'm thinking here about vitamin C, vitamin D. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, yes. I took um, low-dose aspirin for two weeks following my vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it did any good, but I'm still alive. So. Reduce the clotting. Do you, did you take vitamin C as well? Or? I do. I take uh, I take nine thousand units of vitamin D a day in the winter. Mm-hmm. I take two grams of vitamin C a day all the time. Well, that's uh, fascinating. What a wonderful journey we have through um, cardiovascular disease. The essential clotting process as opposed to this very linear but wrong idea that you eat cholesterol that sticks your arteries and of course it uh, you know brings us very in very much into the whole world of optimum nutrition eating real foods and 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 uh, you know everything you've explained so thank you immensely not only for this podcast but for sticking your neck out uh, and following the science and saying it the way you see it uh, which always has consequences uh, it's never, you know, the exact sort of perfect uh, thing to do for a career path in medicine. So thank uh, you. For, thank I, you for your courage and your intelligence. Thank you very much, Patrick. I've enjoyed the chat. I hope it didn't go too far winding off in weird directions, but I think the most interesting discussions sometimes do. No, uh, much appreciated. Uh, all the best. Okay. Thank you. This podcast with Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is just one of many fascinating insider views 
on hot health issues. Highlights this year have been interviews with Professor David Smith, explaining how we already know how to prevent dementia, with Jane McClelland, who is turning the world and expectations of killing even advanced stage four cancers on their head, with Professor Robert Lustig on why sugar is far more dangerous to humanity than COVID, also, we've continued to dig deep into COVID-related issues, uncovering the hidden truth about alternatives from vitamin C, D, and ivermectin. In the new year, we go deep into vaccines, not just for COVID, with Dr. Richard Halverson, one of the UK's leading independent vaccine experts who has decades of experience running a children's vaccine clinic. Award-winning medical journalist Jerome Byrne and I will continue to keep you up to date exposing facts from fiction around the global pandemic. Tune in every month for a pearl of wisdom for a healthy life.